If you can open with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke 2, and welcome to our fifth and final message in our He Is series where we have been walking through the events of Luke 1 and 2 in order to get a glimpse of the revealed identity of the baby in the manger. We've been looking every week at who he is. He is, as we saw um, in week one, the promised one. He is the eternal one in week two. He is the savior of the world. Um, on Friday night at our Christmas Eve service, we saw that he is here. So we've been walking through this. So basically, in a not very shocking way, um, we have spent this Christmas season focused on Jesus. So the one who came to us and for us, and he has been our focus. And Surprise, surprise, for the next 30 minutes or so, um, we are going to once again put our focus on Jesus. And then we'll see what God chooses to do from, from there. And that might sound, I guess, very simplistic in, in our world. We're just going to talk about Jesus. But speaking about Jesus, especially in our world, in the world in which we live, is way more complex than we might think. If I were to say, hey, today we're talking about Jesus... In our context, we're not going to ask the question, well, which Jesus are you talking about? But did you know that throughout the landscape of religion, there are many variations of Jesus? Did you know that Muslims believe in Jesus? In fact, he is written about in the Quran. He is called um, Isa, and the Muslims consider him to be one of the greatest prophets God has ever sent to mankind. They even say he's the Messiah. What they don't believe is that he is deity, that he is God, and they don't believe that he died on the cross. Think about Jews, those who um, give themselves to the religion of Judaism, believe in the historical Jesus, but they see him as the worst of all the false prophets because of the influence that he was able to garner in his life. Hindus believe in Jesus. Some Hindus regard him as the incarnation of the god Vishnu. And according to Hindu belief, Vishnu is periodically incarnated um, in the world in forms as varied as fish, dwarfs, and human beings. So Jesus, in their minds, is among them. Atheists and agnostics believe in a historical Jesus who was either a good teacher or at least lived a life that we should all try to emulate because he was loving and good. Unbelievers, those who don't believe in Jesus, especially in any real religious way, would see Jesus as a historical figure, maybe like George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. They would probably say, sure, he did some very, very good things in his life, but as far as my life, he's really not relevant. Then there's nominal Christians. Those are professing Christians, those who say they're Christians, yet their life represents or shows no signs of following after Jesus. Many nominal Christians believe that Jesus is a good add-on figure to their life, yet, yet he's not necessarily Lord of their lives. He's a type of genie in a bottle who grants wishes but really doesn't demand anything of those who, who follow him. And if we're being really honest, for the nominal Christian, Jesus kind of exists as an errand boy. We tell him what to do, he goes, he gets it, he brings it back to us, and he is always here to comfort our weary souls. So the question becomes, which Jesus are we actually going to be talking about um, this morning? And the good news is none of the ones I just mentioned. Uh, so none, none of those are we going to be talking about. We're going to be focused on Jesus as presented to us in Scripture. 
Now, not the comprehensive Jesus. We don't have time to go over every detail of who he is. But in a very specific way, we're going to look at him this morning according to the Christmas story as Christ the Lord. He is Christ the Lord. Last week and on Friday night, we saw that Jesus is Savior. And what a Savior he is. Amen. Amen. Praise God for the Savior that we have. But he is even more than that. And we live in a world where many want Jesus as Savior, but very few want Jesus as Lord. Many want the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but they do not want the Lion of the tribe of Judah who rules the world. Do we see Jesus as both? Do you want Jesus as both? Do you want Jesus for who he is? For the Bible presents Jesus as not only a lamb, but also a lion. Sometimes in the same chapter. In John 2, we see Jesus as a lamb making water into wine for a humble Jewish couple at their wedding. And then later on in the same chapter, we see Jesus as a lion and taking whips and running people out of the temple. Because he was consumed with zeal for his father's house. In Revelation 5, Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. And in the same chapter, he is referred to as the lamb who has been slain. Now, what we know is a lion is the king of the jungle. A lion eats whatever it wants. A male lion lives within a pride or a a pack with many females and, and children. And if another male comes around, the lion who is head of the pride will go to war and will slaughter anything that threatens his pride or his pack. Now, sometimes in, Jesus, in Scripture, we see Jesus as the lion. Other times, we see him as the lamb. Now, lambs are meek creatures. Many lambs run from danger. They stick together with their flock because they're very social animals. Lambs are vulnerable, and lambs are so comforting that at times we tell our children to count them as they're trying to fall asleep. Nothing scary about a lamb. Nothing scary at all. Lambs are no threat to other animals ever. Again, oftentimes we like Jesus, the lamb, who is no threat to us whatsoever, but we don't seem to long for Jesus, the lion. Yet we must not and we really cannot separate him. We can't separate him as, yeah, I'll take Jesus the lamb. I don't want Jesus the lion. No, he is the lion and he is the lamb. And we must receive him for who he is, for that's the only way he will ever be received. So we're going to come now for the last time in this series to Luke 2. We're going to look at one verse today, Luke 2, verse 11. And we're going to behold this baby in the manger Christ the Lord. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand for about um, 30 seconds, and uh, then we'll sit you right back down. Verse 11 says this, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Father, have your way. Jesus, rule and reign over our time together. May we as your people submit to your lordship today. And may any who are in this room or watching at home that has never trusted you, may today be the day of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So let's, let's tease this out a little more. 
How many times do you think the, the term or the name Savior is mentioned in the New Testament? You don't have to say it out loud, but just guess in your mind how many times the word Savior is used in the New Testament. And the answer is this, 24 times. 24 times, yet of those 24 times, only 15 times the Savior referred to Jesus. Nine of those times it refers to God the Father as Savior. Now, in contrast, how many times do you think the word Lord appears in the New Testament? The answer is this, 618 times. So even more surprising, two-thirds of the books of the New Testament do not refer to Jesus as Savior, although he is, and what a Savior he is. But even Romans and Colossians, the heavyweights of the New Testament, do not refer to Jesus as Savior, but they do refer to him as Lord. Also, Jesus is referred to as the Christ 543 times. So what title do you think the New Testament as a whole seems to be emphasizing? It seems to be emphasizing that he is Christ the Lord. The title Christ, it means anointed one, and it refers to the Messiah, the object of all the Old Testament prophecies, the one who would come. And then Jesus is Lord in Scripture refers to um, not only to Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior, but as the identity or the identifier of the king over all the world. He is Lord over all. So the fundamental theme of the Christian faith is this, Jesus is Lord. It stands at the heart and the core of our Christianity. Everything in the Christian faith, everything that we say we believe, becoming a Christian, living the Christian life, the ultimate outcome of being a Christian stands or falls on the fact that Jesus is Lord. If he is not Lord, then we have no chance of being saved. If he is not Lord, then we have no chance of being kept. But he is Lord. And I know that Jesus is Lord sounds so impersonal. We seem to prefer at times an inward, private, personal Jesus. Jesus' mind sounds so sweet and non-threatening. And of course, we are his. So I'm not saying we're not. Um, and he is ours. But listen, we don't get to make him into our own liking. We don't get to make him who we want him to be. We don't get build a Jesus. Like when we come to him, we don't get this Jesus and, hey, whatever you want to add on to him, you can. Whatever you don't want to add on, it's like, this is my Jesus. Me and him are good. We don't get to do that. We either take him for who he is or we lose everything apart from him. It's the way it goes. So Jesus Christ, the Lord, and just as he did in the temple, he will overturn the tables of our own lives. He'll come into our lives and he will overturn. He'll disrupt our desires. And once he's gotten a hold of us, and once he has gotten a hold of his church, he will then begin to turn the tables over in society. And society hates it. And society will fight back against it. But my prayer for this morning is that our Lord would overturn some of the tables in our lives today. That he would overturn some of our lives today in the best way possible. So we're going to spend the next few minutes unpacking two truths. So one less truth than normal, but no less time. You are welcome. And the two truths focus on the fact that Jesus is Christ the Lord. The first is this, Jesus is the anointed Christ. He is the anointed Christ. 
course, verse 11 says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ. He is Christ. And Christ is not the last name of Jesus. So it's not Jesus Christ. It's not his first and last name. Christ is his title. He is the anointed one. In Matthew 16, when Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? And Peter, being led by God, says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So why does the Bible refer to Jesus as the Christ or as the Messiah? And if you didn't grow up in church, then this probably requires a little bit of explanation. So what we know is that when God created the world, he placed Adam and Eve in a beautiful garden. He gave them authority over everything. He commanded them to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, to be faithful stewards over everything that he gave them. He also commanded them not to do something. To not eat of the tree of what? Of the knowledge of good and evil. And if they did, they would surely what? So they would die. Uh, we don't like saying that word in church, but it's, there is a 100% chance that if Jesus doesn't come back, you will, I will die. It is just the reality of it all. But we see this picture. You will surely die. As we know, the serpent persuaded Eve to try the fruit. She gave it to Adam, together they disobeyed God's command, bringing sin, death, and brokenness into this world. Yet in the middle of God's punishment for their sin, God gave them a promise of a Savior. God, in speaking to the servant, serpent, talked about a seed of a woman who would come. And although the serpent would nip at his heel, that seed would crush the serpent's head becoming the savior and lord over all and all of that is only three chapters in just imagine all of that three chapters in and so we we keep going what about the rest of the old testament it turns out that god revealed information about the messiah all throughout the old testament when god comes to abraham he says in you will all the nations of the earth be blessed so through you, blessings for all people. He told Abraham's great-grandson Judah that a king would come from one of his descendants and that king would bring peace on earth. And even though David was from the tribe of Judah and David was a king, a man after God's own heart, David was not the Messiah. David was not the one who was going to bring true peace on earth. Yet, the Messiah would come from David's line. Even during the darkest days of Israel and Judah, when the kings of Israel and Judah would disobey God and would lead people away from God, the prophets would still come and say, the Messiah is coming. The anointed one is coming. The king is coming. Finally, praise be to God, Jesus came a king, not just of Israel, but a king of the whole world. He saved us, not just from outside oppression, but from the oppression of sin and death, giving us real power over evil in all of our lives. And here's the good news. He will come again and finish what he has started. Amen. He will come again. And here's what we have to understand, an examination of organized religions. I have to be really careful when I speak about this way because Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. So religion is man's attempt to get to God. 
Christianity is God in Christ coming to man. You understand the difference? The differences couldn't be any clearer. But in organized religion, the scenario is always the same. Follow with me. First comes the man, then comes the plan. So in every organized religion, at the very beginning, you have a leader who steps forward, the man. Then this man comes up and presents this new revelation, the plan. And of course, people follow. Yet Christianity stands in stark contrast because with Christianity, the order is reversed. First came the plan, then came the man. So the plan came first from the very beginning of time, before God even created the world and us. God knew what was going to happen, and there is what's called the covenant of redemption, where God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit covenanted together that they would do everything that they needed to do to save us. God the Father said, I will plan their salvation. God the Son said, I will purchase their salvation. And God the Holy Spirit said, I will seal them in their salvation. So when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son born of a virgin. And Jesus isn't, he's not the Christ because he came the the closest to meeting all the criteria. And he's not the Christ because he was the only one to meet all the criteria. He is the Messiah because he set the criteria. He revealed unique details of himself all throughout the Old Testament, and then he uniquely fulfilled them all. We talked about this a few weeks ago about the, the promised one. Let me just remind you of a few promises. According to Isaiah 7:14, Jesus would be conceived of a virgin. According to Micah 5:2, he would be born in Bethlehem. According to Isaiah 29, he would heal the blind and the deaf. According to Zechariah 9, he would present himself as Messiah by humbly riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. According to Zechariah 11, he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. According to Isaiah 53, he would be unfairly judged and condemned to die. According to Psalm 22 and Again, Isaiah 53, he would be crucified as an offering for our sin. And according to Isaiah 53, 10 through 12, he would be raised from the dead. All of this criteria was laid out and Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. Fulfilled them all. As we said a few weeks ago, Jesus did not come as an unannounced Messiah. First, the plan was Revealed, then Jesus came to us and for us. Jesus is the anointed Christ. But secondly, Jesus is the exalted Lord. He is the exalted Lord. Again, verse 11. We, we see this picture. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Just think about Jesus as Lord. I heard this amazing illustration. Let's assume, let's just assume that the distance between the earth and the sun, so 92 million miles, was reduced to the thickness of one sheet of paper. So make that assumption. If that's the case, then the distance between the earth and the nearest star would be a stack of papers 70 feet high. So follow with me here. The diameter of the galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high, and our galaxy is just a speck of dust 
in the universe. And according to the word of God, Jesus holds it all together by the word of his power. If all that is true, if all that is true, and we believe it is, then is Jesus the kind of person that you invite into your life to be your assistant? Now, he'd be a great assistant, right? I mean, he can do anything you want him to. But with that kind of power, he's not coming to be your assistant. He's not coming to be my assistant. He comes to be my Lord. And he comes to be your Lord. For too long, pastors and teachers have stood in churches and begged people to make Jesus Lord. Please make Jesus Lord. And hear me this morning. Hear this as clear as I can say this. We don't make Jesus Lord. He is already Lord. You, it's not like you have the power and all of a sudden you cast the deciding vote and Jesus says, I get to be Lord. They voted me in. No, whether you choose to acknowledge him as Lord or not, he is still Lord and he will forever be Lord. So what do we do? We don't make him Lord. We surrender to his lordship. We surrender to the fact that he is Lord. We bow the knee to him. That means that Jesus is not just an important chapter in the story of the world. He's the book in which every story is written. He is that important. And I know this kind of all or nothing position concerning Jesus is not popular. It's not something that we hear a lot. Yet Jesus is Lord, period. He is Lord, period. Think about this. Towards the beginning of the second century, the Roman emperor decided that Christians had become so numerous that there was no use trying to um, get rid of them anymore, so he decided to make peace. He even decided to put a statue of Jesus in the pantheon among all of the Greek gods. So a symbol at the top of the pantheon was a declaration that says, Caesar is Lord, which if you lived in Rome, that's what you had to say. Caesar is Lord, indicating that Caesar was to be first. Now, the Christians could have been honored by this, how far they had come. Not long before that, they were just a ragtag group of fishermen from the backwoods of Israel, and now they're in the pantheon. They could have said, we've made it. We've made it. We have no further to go. But instead of being grateful, they sent a letter to the emperor and said, if you don't remove the statue of Jesus, we will. And here's what they said. Jesus will never be among your gods because he is above all of them. He will never be among your gods because he is above them all. When the early Christians chose to say Jesus is Lord as their declaration, they were literally choosing to put their life um, in the hands of God because their lives could have been taken away by the Roman emperor, not saying Caesar is Lord. Their words were not trite statements. Their words, uh, Jesus is Lord, were, were treasonous. But they were, they were rebellion against the establishment. They were a picture of allegiance and alliance to Jesus. Those three words, Jesus is Lord, changed everything. Yet the question for us this morning is this, what kind of Lord is he? What kind of Lord is Jesus? He is the kind who not only deserves our obedience, he's the kind who wins our admiration. He is the kind of king that we not only acknowledge with our service, he's the kind of king that we adore and delight in. 
He is a giving Lord, not an exacting Lord. He is not a selfish Lord. He is a self-sacrificing Lord. He's not a mean Lord. He is kind and he is good to us all. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Pastor Tim Keller compared the lordship of Jesus to what he would call a life quake. And there's a quote I want to put up here. He says this, When a great big truck goes over a tiny little bridge, sometimes there's a bridge quake. And when a big man goes onto thin ice, there's an ice quake. Whenever Jesus Christ comes down into a person's life, there's always a life quake. Everything is reordered. If Jesus was just a guru, if he was just a great man, if he was just a great teacher, even if he was a genie in the bottle, there would be some limits to his rights over us. But if he is Lord, we can't approach him on our terms. We have to approach him on his. Meaning, anything, any view that you have, any conviction that you have, any idea, any relationship, he is Lord over it. And the Bible says this, in everything, he must be first. Listen to that. The Bible says in, in everything, in every relationship, in every thought, in every decision, in every word, Jesus must be first. He must be first. And please don't think that I'm speaking about some super um, Christian here that the super Christians make Jesus Lord. The rest of us, we're just here and we're doing the best that we can. No, the confession of Jesus as Lord is at the, the ground level of Christianity. Look at Romans 10, 9 on the screen. Because if you confess with your mouth that what? And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Later in verse 13, it says, whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Don't miss that. Think of it this way. According to James 2.19, even the devil himself has more faith than many professing Christians. James 2.19 says the devil or demons, they believe and they tremble. They shudder. When was the last time you shuddered at the thought of who God is? When was the last time you shuddered or trembled at him? I'm going to give a little illustration I've probably used at least once a year. And if you've heard it before, just humor me and let's keep going. If you haven't, just think about this. But if Satan were here this morning, if he were to come down, he stood among us, and he had to tell the truth. So somebody has brought that to my attention. Satan's a liar. I get it. But he had to tell the truth. And we asked him, do you believe that the Bible is the word of God? Satan would have to say, yes, the Bible is the word of God. I believe that. If you were to say, well, Satan, do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? He would say, yes, I know that he is the son of God. Well, Satan, do you believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose again? And Satan would say, yes, I was there when it happened. Absolutely, I believe in that. Well, Satan, do you believe that Jesus is the only way to be saved? Satan would say, yes, I know that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Then if you were to say, well, Satan, would you like to to join the First Baptist Church of Ocean Way and use your talents, gifts, and abilities here. He would say, nothing would make me happier than to join this church and do what I do here. Now, here's the problem. That's a mighty fine checklist, right? For someone who does not possess and never will possess salvation. That's a mighty fine checklist. In fact, if, if you were following along, 
you agree with Satan on every single thing. So what would be the defining question? What would be the dividing question between Satan who will never be saved and us who will? And the question is this, Satan, will you repent of your sins and will you surrender your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ? And Satan would say, never. I will never. I will never. Absolutely not. And I believe that there are many professing Christians today who have believed one half of Romans 10.9. They believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. They believe in the resurrection. But they don't go as far as to make Jesus Lord. They've never surrendered their life to him. And this day, whether you're here in this room or whether you're watching online, I want to beg you. I want to implore you. I'm going to urge you right where you are today to believe the claims of Jesus. Believe his claims. Receive his love. Let today be the day that you call Jesus Lord. Place your life under his lordship for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you've never done that, today cry out to him. Cry out to him. Tell him that you have sinned. You've missed the mark. You've fallen short of his glory. He knows it. You need to know it. And say, that I believe that, Jesus, you died. You came. You lived a life I could never live. You died a death for sins I could never die. You rose from the dead. I could never do that. And you did it for me. And I put my trust and my faith in you, Jesus, as my Savior and my Lord this day. And if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. But let me also say this this morning to every believer under the sound of my voice. Are you in this moment surrendering your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Are you in this moment? If Jesus is Lord, you don't get to tell him no. Let me say it again. If he's Lord, you don't get to tell him no. What was the last time, what was the last thing you know Jesus told you to do? Are you still doing it? Or did somewhere along the way you told him no, and now you've never felt further away from him? You don't get to walk with him as your companion and tell him no. You don't get to do that. No, if he is your Lord, you do what he tells you to do. Whether you like it or not, whether it makes you feel good or not, whether it makes you feel humble or not, you do what he tells you to do. If Jesus is your Lord, you don't get to disobey his commands. You don't get to ignore his commands. You don't get to act like this isn't the most important book in all the world. If he is Lord, let me go a step further, you don't get to be in charge. You don't get to be in charge. Are you currently submitting, surrendering your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? On this Sunday, last Sunday, before a new year, there is no better time than for us as the people of God to once again surrender our lives to him. And say, God, I, I can't on my own obey everything you tell me to do. But with your help, by your grace, by your grace, I want to walk where you send me. I want to speak as you've commanded me to. I want to go where you send me. I want to do what you've called me to do. And here's the good news. He will help us and he will accomplish and finish what he started. I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand.
We're going to call the musicians forward again, entering this time of invitation and consecration. But that's the question. Is Jesus Lord today? Has there been a time where you have confessed with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believed in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you've called in the name of the Lord to be saved? And then Christian, are you letting him be in charge? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you, and Lord, this is not a, a fun message, an easy message, but Lord, what an amazingly true and needed message. Jesus, you are Lord, but are we surrendering to your lordship? Are we bowing the knee to you? Lord, you won't take a tip of the, the hat. We can't just nod our head at you, Lord. We must bow the knee. Today, I pray, if any in this room, any watching online, don't know that today would be the day of salvation. Also, Lord, I pray for the, every child of God under the sound of my, my voice. Lord, may we, may we surrender to you. Sometimes it looks like in the midst of difficult circumstances, we surrender to you. We stop trying to do everything on our own and we trust you of what you're doing. Not that we don't do our part or do what you call us to do, but we trust you to be Lord. Father, I pray that you would show us in this moment, are there things in our lives that we're telling you no? Are there things in our lives that we have put aside? We said you can touch everything else, but you can't touch this. Well, if that's true, then those things are the Lord of our lives. Lord, help us to present ourselves to you, to surrender to your lordship in every area of our life. Just finish this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've reached the last Christmas carol that we will sing together this Christmas season. So let's sing it nice and loud together. We'll sing the first Noel. Shining in 